This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. I think that's a good point. I think we often forget to visualize the signal like what it is. We see just a lot of curves in different channels and and I think the visualization is the is the key. Do you do you try to visualize or have this kind of some kind of analogous for a Christmas tree or something with also other signals, for example EMG? How how, how do you how do you visualize? How do you understand EMG? So EMG, I don't have probably the same strong visual image with that because the EMG with with that, I'm pretty much just looking, is there activity? With the EMG, I'm more concerned, especially since we're working with data from the animal lab, I'm more concerned about looking for artifacts and looking for noise. So there I'm more concerned with differentiating good data from bad data. And with that, because I have a very specific question I'm trying to answer with the EMG. With the EEG, there's a lot more exploration going on because we're really trying to understand what is happening inside the brain. The EMG, because we're not studying muscles, the only reason we have that there is to try and see if if we're seeing the signs of REM behavior disorder. Is the mu- are the muscles twitching when they shouldn't be twitching? So in that case, my from my data analysis standpoint, my first task is to look for look for bad data, uh, make sure that you know what I'm seeing is real, and second, just seeing if it meets a certain threshold. Um, is this a muscle twitching when it shouldn't be twitching? And then making sure that I line that data up correctly with the EM, the, the EEG that I'm using to see if this animal is in REM sleep, making sure that lineup is correctly. So that's really all I'm doing with the EMG. So we, we don't, I'm not investing a deep visualization there because I'm really just looking for, is it on or off? So basically, you are just from EMG kind of looking, is the brain sending signal to the muscle that causes causes the activation? Yeah, that's that's very, very interesting. And and maybe continuing with this theme, you said that you are very interested in music and you want to look at the signal of the music, which I'm also doing when uh, when when editing the podcast. So I have I have used to looking looking the sound and it's it's quite interesting that for example, many people say like um before they start. And when you're editing the podcast, you start to see that this shape is always the arm. And then then some people say um and and they swallow and, and you see and then you can delete without even listening because you know that that's the sounds that you get you can delete. So so about the music, how does it help in science? to be excited about music and understanding the sounds that are in the music? So I've pulled music in into my work recently. So I also teach an undergraduate physics class uh, this term, and I've it's a non-major class. So I'm trying to make it very 
application heavy. Like this is how we apply physics in our lives. And for one of my classes, I brought in my cello and a microphone and played played a few notes and we pulled it into MATLAB to look at it. And so from a physics standpoint, what, what I was demonstrating was the cello is a vibrating string. This is what a vibrating string looks like. Here are the different frequencies. And we, we did the math on the board, how to calculate the frequency of a vibrating string, that sort of thing. But the, the, the from a neuroscience perspective, and I pointed this out in class, so I played the string on the cello. And then I also played using MATLAB, you can generate pure tones. So I generated a pure tone that was the same frequency as a string. So the cello, generally people find the sound pleasing. And the pure tone is annoying. There's a reason why we make alarms uh, and warning buzzers that electronic, you know, single tone because it's really annoying and you want to make it stop. So we used Fourier analysis to compare the two. Like, why is this electric tone annoying and the cello sounds rich and beautiful? Well, if you do the Fourier analysis, electric tone has a single frequency. It's a spike. You know, you get this one frequency. The musical instrument like the cello, if you do the Euphoria analysis there, you get all the harmonics because you get the main vibration, the entire string, that's the the main frequency. But you get all these harmonics because basically every possible vibration that that string can produce also appears in the Fourier analysis. And you end up with a much more complex sound. And in that way, it's a lot like the human voice. Like a, the human voice is not a single frequency. It's many frequencies layered on top of each other. And our brains like to listen to voices. Um, so that was visually just a way to use physics to say, hey, why is this sound pleasing to us? And this sound really annoying. Um, and another topic that I've been interested in and just reading about, so our... Our group at Sharp at OHSU, we're involved in a lot of different neuroscience studies, all with the focus of improving lives for people. And one of the conditions we do think about is Parkinson's disease. And so reading about Parkinson's disease, a lot of people, and this is true with persons with uh, Alzheimer's disease as well, they just sort of perform better when they're listening to music. Um, it's easier for them to walk. It's easier for them to dance. It's easier for them to exercise. Um, people with memory, uh, people who might be struggling to find words can sing songs. So what is happening with music? And that I, there are studies happening where people are trying to figure out, like, what is the brain doing when it's listening to music that's different? And how can we use that to help people? So that's, we, we don't have an active study on that right now, but I just think it's an interesting topic of research that the, the brain does something really unique when it's listening to music and we don't quite entirely understand what that is. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And I think when, when they hear rhythm or music, a person with the Parkinson's, they are walking better, but it's also rhythm left, right, left, right, left, right, like like walking is is a rhythm and you need to you need to activate this and i had a podcast recording where we discussed also that there are three animals that can dance and one is human and one is asian elephant and one is a parrot and they are they are the same animals that can talk so they can they can talk asian elephant i think they can they show that scientifically that they can say five you can teach five words in 
in Korean to them. But but anyway, I think the point was that somehow our hearing and our motor cortex was connected because we need to change our movements in our throat that we can actually make the sounds that we we are able. So there's a connection between the ear and the motor cortex that is directing. And that's how somehow when we dance, we are using the same connection that the music that's coming to our ear, we use to move our body in the same rhythm or, or something like this. But I think it's very, very, very fascinating, this this link between music and motor function. Yeah. Also, also when you said this single tone and like, if, if I give examples of podcast editing, sometimes, you know, there's from a connection, there's some noise coming and it's really annoying. And then I try to edit it out. I'm doing the fast Fourier transformation and I see the signal and I try to find that what is the noise that can I just cut it. And it's super difficult because human voice has almost all, all the frequencies. So let me see. We have discussed a lot of different things. Um, I, I have my notes, three pages <laughs> already. Maybe we discuss about this, that you have the human and animal studies at the same time. And you can, you can look, how do you, how do you use it? What do you see as the biggest advantages of, of this setting? So with the, the animal studies, we can observe, we can have more control over our animal studies. And I'll explain what I mean there by talking a bit about the human studies. So my first experience when I was a postdoc, when I was a postdoc with Dr. K, um, he runs a project called Orchitech. And it is this project of observing people, older people in their home environments, going about their regular lives over long periods of time. There are people who've been volunteers in this project for more than 10 years. And the way that they're observed is these very simple little motion sensors are placed throughout their homes. And you can just pick up that where people are moving around. It's very, very simple data. It's a simple timestamp motion was detected. So as a data scientist, my role was to take this very simple data and turn it into observations about the person's circadian rhythms and their life patterns and their activity and that sort of thing. And so one of the things I learned, so you had, in order to do this, you had to make observate, you know, assumptions so because this data, again, very simple, just a timestamp. Oh, you know, the motion detector blinked at this exact moment. So um, you would have to make assumptions like the person, if they go into their bedroom and they're still, they're in bed and they're asleep and we can estimate their sleep time. The thing that I learned from working with humans is that any assumption you make is going to be wrong. People will have all kinds of unusual habits that you will never be able to predict. Um, very quickly, I learned a lot of people sleep on their couches. A lot of people sleep in their recliner or a lot of people get up and eat in the middle of the night, that sort of thing. So you would have to build those assumptions in and they would automatically be wrong. So people are really difficult to predict. So from a data science standpoint, it makes it really challenging, interesting to work with, but challenging. So in the animal lab, if we're doing studies of sleep and circadian rhythms and activity, we have an environment we can absolutely control. We know when the lights are on and off. We know what the temperature is. We know where those animals are. And so that makes it really useful to study 
circadian rhythms and how that affects health and sleep patterns and things like REM behavior disorder, because you know exactly what that animal's daily activity has been. And um, we can do things. We also do studies looking at um, social behavior between animals. One of the animals we work with is a prairie vole. And the reason why prairie voles are interesting is they're unusual as rodents because they bond in a very human-like way. So they're a good way to study how bonding affects development and how, and the relationship between social interactions and sleep. Like we're finding that we know that yeah, we all know that sleep disruption, sleep deprivation is terrible for humans. Everybody's experienced it. But in these animals, these purgles, we can see exactly how, especially early in life, how does sleep disruption and sleep deprivation affect how they behave as adults towards each other. And we do see that it has an effect. So the way that that, that helps us is if we're looking at REM behavior disorder in mice, which is a, something we are looking at, well, those mice, I, I know exactly what their sleep patterns are. I know exactly what they've been doing every day. Um, they, I can measure over days, you know, their EEG patterns, that sort of thing, because they are a captive audience that I can see what they're doing, which is much more difficult in a human. So we also have these studies with our human volunteers and the human volunteers will come in for a night of polysomnography. They will come in for MRI scans. But in that case, we're only capturing a moment in their life. We're capturing one night. And so, but by combining the two, we can learn about, we can use the animal data to learn about the human data. And so they complement each other really well. Yeah, in interesting. And and you've been doing quite a, quite a bit of studies of circadian rhythm. And you said that it's assumptions what you make of humans is is usually incorrect. How how do you see the technology of of measuring different variables that relate to circadian rhythm? What would you like to measure that would really help the understanding of circadian rhythm in humans? What what would we need to measure better that we would understand them better? I think one thing that's really challenging is studying when people are actually asleep. So um, one of the, the calculations that, that I've done, um, I, did a, I took a look at the data from the Orchitex study over these long periods. And um, so these are older adults and things happen with circadian rhythms as you age, even during healthy aging, but especially if you develop something like Alzheimer's disease is your circadian rhythms start to weaken. And what happens is you have a lot more, you have naps during the day, you have wakenings during the night, you have a lot more sleep fragmentation. And um, so one of the things that I found looking, looking at this data is a lot of times in circadian rhythm studies, people try and take this sleep active data and fit it to a cosine curve. So that we have this beautiful image of we're like a cosine, we're awake during the day and then we're asleep during the night, we're awake during the day and we have this perfect, beautiful 24 hour rhythm. It's really not true for anybody. And if you have disrupted circadian rhythms, it becomes even more difficult. So uh, one measure that I liked to use was um, interdaily stability 
intradaily variability. I found this a very useful measure. And these were metrics that were designed to look at circadian rhythms. So the intradaily stability, instead of trying to take your data and force it to be a cosine, what it does is it just You take your data for a single person and you break it into 24-hour chunks and you look at how much do each of these 24-hour chunks look like each other? How similar are your days? Do you have a regular pattern? And um, so that's one measure we could use for circadian rhythms. The other is intradaily variability. Intradaily variability is looking at your fragmentation. How often are you transitioning between being awake and asleep? And are you waking up a lot at night? Are you taking a lot of naps? We have this ideal vision in our heads. Everybody thinks, oh, I'm going to lay down. I'm going to sleep for a solid eight hours. And then I'm going to be awake the rest of the day. And that happens for nobody. Everybody has awakenings during, during the night. But especially as you age, and we see this in people with Alzheimer's disease, they have more sleep fragmentation, more transitions between being awake and being asleep. Um, And I found this was really interesting. So with the architect data set, again, we had years worth of data. So you could really see, um, I found some cases where just by looking at this data that was entirely from these little motion sensors, um, I could see changes in people's lives. I saw one case where there was a woman and you could see that her patterns had changed. And I had access to her her health, her personal, the participants once a week would fill out a report talking about their health and other events in their life. And it turns out she had been diagnosed with, with a medical condition and eventually she her, the treatment worked and she improved. And if I looked at her data, I could see the same pattern. She had increased fragmentation. Her days were not as predictable. And then and then she recovered and, and it came back. Another really interesting case, and none, none of this is published. It was just thing anecdotal. But um, there was one gentleman looking at his data and his intradaily variability decreased. He had fewer of these transitions. His sleep was becoming more stable with time. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. So I I looked at his reports and he had written a report saying that he had started using uh, lavender essential oils at night. And he and in this report, he says, I feel like my sleep has improved. Like I'm sleeping better. I was like, the data is Yes, you're correct. Your sleep has improved. And uh, I was curious enough about it that I did a literature search. And there is some literature, there are some publications supporting the idea that especially as you age, lavender uh, essential oils can help you sleep. Again, it's very, very preliminary sort of anecdotal data. But it was just it was just interesting and fun. So in terms of measuring people's sleep, um, for long-term studying people's life patterns, we have to accept the the limitations of what we can do in order to really, uh, right now, the gold standard is polysomnography, which is you have an EEG, you're measuring people's respiratory rate, you've got there's it's it's very it's pretty uncomfortable. But it's it's the one method that really reliably allows us to tell what stage of sleep are you in? There's no way we can do that for people over long periods of time. But I think if we can get technology wise, like if we can get better at differentiating between sleep and rest, um, in a lot of the publications I've written, I've had to 
make the the caveat that with this technology, these technologies, these unobtrusive technologies, I can't 100% tell that somebody is asleep. So we'll say this is resting behavior is still, they're resting, but I can't tell you 100% that they're actually physically asleep. So I think that that's one challenge is if we can get better at telling when somebody is just laying still, maybe reading, watching TV in bed, or if they're actually physically asleep without being obtrusive, that I think that's, that's a really interesting problem. Yeah, they're very interesting. I, I, I know the difficulty of really knowing that when somebody's in, in sleep with any, any signal, especially something that you can measure easily, easily at home. So how would you see for intraday stability, for example, that we have had different solutions that you put the sensor on the back, for example, then we can distinguish when the person is laying down, when the person is sitting and when the person is standing and, and walking. How, how do you see this kind of postural allocation that would it give good information of this variability during the day? Or do you see that it should be the movement of the wrist that we we move our arms quite a bit when we are awake and a little bit when we are in the bed and sleeping? So how do you see the different kind of things that we can currently measure? And what do you think are the best for this kind of variability measurements? I think the posture information is definitely useful. Sleeping versus standing versus sitting. I definitely, that narrows the problem down. Um, you definitely get back into the fact that people are so unpredictable. I think you can safely make, and uh, somebody's going to prove me wrong as soon as I say this. I think you can safely make the assumption that if somebody is standing, they're probably not asleep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but you will find somebody, you will find the one person who sleeps standing up and they are in your study. Um, but sitting versus sleeping, I mean, if you can differentiate between sitting very erect and active versus kind of slumped over, there are a lot of people, especially among older people, if they have issues with you know, stomach issues, a lot of people sleep sitting up and a lot of people will sleep like in a, a recliner chair in the living room. And that seems to be a pretty common thing. So sitting, I think it'd be worth looking at, well, can you tell the difference between sitting up awake and sitting up asleep? And it might be, you might be able to tell, it might be that the awake sitting person fidgets more than the sleeping person. Um, laying down, again, it's a safe assumption that if the person's laying down, maybe they're at least trying to sleep, but they could be reading, they could be watching TV. So again, it is it is challenging. One thing that might be another useful bit of information is light information. Uh, if you can tell if they're in the dark or not, that might be a useful clue if they're at least trying to sleep. Yeah, really, really good points. And about this intradaily stability are, are you familiar with the sleep regularity index that you can calculate and and is it is it similar to this i think yeah it's the same same basic idea like how how regular are your patterns because because that can be a strong warning sign if somebody if somebody's pattern changes that's a good indicator that something is happening in their life 
And uh, it could be that you know you have a new family member, you have a baby, that's definitely going to change your sleep regularity. But if you're an older adult who lives alone and your sleep, your interdaily stability, your sleep regularity changes, that could be a first warning sign that perhaps you should go talk to your doctor. Perhaps you should have a neurological workup that something is changing in your brain and your your pattern is shifting. So that that could be a good first warning sign that something is going on. Yeah, interesting. And and when you said that you've been studying this interdaily stability, do you have some index that how do you calculate? Do you have some way of giving it the number? Yes, there is an equation and it is it is a, it does give you a single number. So it um and there there are papers with it published, so it's a fairly straightforward equation. And, uh, yep, you just look at basically you take your data and you mark it as asleep versus awake. And, um, these, there, there's a matching set that intradaily stability, intradaily variability. There's a lot of MATLAB and Python scripts already written that'll do this. So, yeah, and it's nice because it gives you a single number that tells you either how stable somebody's sleep patterns are and how much fragmentation. It's really useful to calculate both because it's very possible that somebody could have a very fragmented pattern where they they nap a lot during the day and they're awake a lot during the night. But if they tend to do that every day, their stability is going to look really high because their days really resemble each other. So it's useful to look at both sides of the coin, like are how much do their days resemble each other and what do those days look like? How many consolidated sleep periods is this person experiencing? Yeah, very interesting. And you said that when we age, we we tend to get worse. Our rhythms are weakening, or if we have have some medical condition, how well do you see that these are predicting our health? How how useful would it be to keep keep measuring these from from different people? Well, it's it's hugely helpful. First off, just because sleep is so crucial. We need sleep just to feel good. It's when our brain resets itself. We we know that sleep deprivation is, it doesn't take too many nights of sleep deprivation before you really start to feel the effects and you feel terrible. So it's important for that um, aspect that just sleep in and of itself is very important. The other aspect about it that's important is Looking at the sleep patterns gives you a window into what is happening in this person's brain because the mechanisms of the brain that that govern sleep and govern the circadian rhythm, they're very deep in the brain and they are not the part of the brain that you're picking up with EEG. They're parts of the brain that you you can't measure in a non-invasive way. So looking at sleep, looking at circadian rhythms gives you a window into this deep part of the brain. And if things are starting to go wrong, that can tell you that something is happening with this. It can give you the first signs of some sort of neurodegeneration in these deep structures of the brain. So it's a way to to take a look at what's happening without, because it's just not possible to do really these deep measures unless you're putting somebody in an MRI or something like that. It's not an observation you can do easily. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. 
If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.